It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. It's not unusual for many people when plunging into salt water, whether it's at the beach or diving on a beautiful reef, to have at least in the back of their mind the notion that they could be jumping into an environment inhabited by sharks, a fear that was highlighted by the 1975 film Jaws. There's even a word for this fear, galeophobia. These apex predators trace their roots back to the Jurassic period, and nearly 500 species of shark can be found all over the world in every ocean. But they aren't necessarily the mindless killers they're made out to be by the media. Helping people study these fascinating animals is what marine biologist Jessica Cramp has dedicated her career to, including spending a lot of time in the water with them and starting her own nonprofit, Shark Specific. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Freedom Consulting Group. If you're looking for stimulating work in our national security intelligence sector, check them out at freedomconsultinggroup.com. We caught up with Jess recently during one of her research efforts in the Cook Islands. And please bear with us for this episode as our audio is a little bit off because of the remote location from which we recorded her with her. So Jess, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. We're so delighted to have you with us today. It's a real treat. Um, can't wait to, to get into this. Awesome. Thanks very much for having me. I feel very honored to be your first shark guest. Yeah. So um, I guess the first question for you is, where are you right now? I am on an island called Rarotonga. So you get 10 extra points if you know where that is. Um, it's in the South Pacific in a country called the Cook Islands. And that's uh, pretty far south of Hawaii. But it's really cool that just as an aside that we have somebody on an island in the South Pacific, we have somebody on a mountaintop in Colorado and somebody in Poland, and we're all able to talk at the same time. It's pretty neat. Magic. Modern technology to the rescue. So let's just jump right in. And actually, before we get to the sharks question and why sharks, we have to talk about how it all came about. And because you had a stable job in San Diego working in a lab, but all of a sudden you quit and changed your lifestyle. And for lack of a better description, went adventuring, which totally sounds awesome. And so can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that was a big step right there. Like all normal sane people do, I had a pretty well-paying job, which allowed me to, you know, live near the beach and surf every day. And um, I decided to quit all that and go volunteer for a year. Uh, well, it was supposed to be a year at the outset. The impetus behind that was just that I had these scientific skills. I was spending a lot of time in a lab, but I felt that my dreams and I suppose my daily actions weren't really aligned, but that I could use my scientific training to try to make more of an impact on the world. Uh, or so I thought at the time. And so I saved a bunch of money and just set a date on the calendar. And then I quit. And I first headed to Haiti and then post-earthquake Haiti, which was an eye-opener. And then um, to Panama, Costa Rica, sailed across the Pacific. And then here I am. So just real quick, I'm curious. I, I did something similar where I, I took a little break and did a bunch of volunteering. What kind of volunteer work did you do? Well, what I had done... Uh, prior to quitting my job was I spent some time researching organizations that I thought 
might be making a good impact on the ground, because I felt that what was coming out of the media versus what was happening on the ground, that there may have been a disconnect. And I wanted to see what the real impact was in country. I first went to post-earthquake Haiti, and I worked with a great group called Project MetaShare. Because of my scientific training in a lab, I actually spent 12 hours a day um, filling IV bags for, for medical procedures and staring out over you know, a bunch of people in a field hospital. And it was quite apparent to me that there's a very special breed of human that is cut out for that work. And, and it was clear to me that that person wasn't me. That was hard to swallow because, you know, in your mind, you think I've got the gumption for this. I have the training. But um, it was really clear to me that, you know, doctors and nurses were the real heroes there. And um, I just felt a bit like overflow. Jess, I was in Haiti right after the earthquake and it was devastating. I know that it was so important to have volunteers like you going down there and helping in any way they could, but it had to be shocking for you to see the devastation. Uh, it absolutely was. And it was also, it was very apparent that, you know, there was a lot of aid money flowing into Haiti, but there was still so much work that needed to be done on the ground that anyone and anyone that, that could help seemed to show up, but not everyone was well-placed. And, you know, I can say there were some groups that were really incredible and some groups I would say where money was flowing <laughs> into the organization and maybe not uh, into Haiti. So that was a bit of an eye-opener for me and and really changed my mind on how, if I wanted to work in a country, how it would be more important to actually become part of a community rather than just kind of showing up and then, you know, leaving. So let's go all the way back. You were raised in Pennsylvania, if I recall correctly. Uh, and, you know, we're going to talk about some of the other risks you take here in a minute. But, you know, for most people, departing from a sure thing, a stable job is already too risky. Was there anything about your upbringing as a little girl in Pennsylvania that sort of set this up for you so that you knew you were going to do something special? Well, to be quite frank, I ripped the Band-Aid off. Um, I came from a home of addiction and was told very early on that, you know, maybe I won't amount to anything, not from my family, but from people in the outside world who saw what my home life was like. And uh, I think that it just made me really gritty as a little kid saying like, hey, screw you, watch me, watch what I do. And so I think really early on, it was, a, I guess, a, a drive to prove people wrong but then, you know, my home life, while maybe not super stable, was always filled with love and, hey, you can be whatever you want to be. Don't listen to anyone. And that really drove me as a child um, to just be able to look at my dreams and say, hey, I'm going to be the shortstop of the New York Mets. Like I thought that at one stage and there was no reason that I, I couldn't do that or I want to be a fighter pilot. I mean, that was uh, a real dream of mine for a long time. And I never was I was never told that that was something that I couldn't do. And so I think just that encouragement, but also, you know, the outside perspective of maybe I won't amount to anything because of what my home life was like. I think that those combined really created a fire in my gut that to this day, un unquenchable. Well, I don't know about being the shortstop for the Yankees, but you definitely could have been a fighter pilot. There's just no question about that. And we should talk sometime on the side because, you know, I have a nonprofit that is dedicated to ending the addiction fatality epidemic. So uh, it's great to, to, to see that you uh, came out of that very difficult situation and from a family that was in that situation and have, have sort of made something of that. And I'm sure it has influenced your, your character. So that's terrific. Yeah. I, I would love to chat and offer any stories or anything in the future. So going back to the volunteer work, you, you were in Haiti and the sharks, how did that leap happen? So to, to try to make it as short as possible, um, I was constantly doing a self-evaluation, as you will, or, or a gut check, to be uh, more frank, as to whether my 
abilities or my 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 ability to actually assist a program was aligned with um with how I was feeling inside. And like I said, after Haiti, it was very apparent to me that I wasn't the best fit for that. It was quite torturous for me to look out over the sea of people at the hospital. And I found myself counting the seconds until my shift was over because it was just really hard. And I understand that, you know, inside it made me feel weak or, you know, like I didn't have uh, a strong enough character to do that work. But I just had to be honest with myself that there are people that are really good at this. And that just wasn't me. I had, you know, the field skills to do it, but I, I, it just, it wasn't, yeah, it didn't sit well with me. And then uh, I was in Panama and I was doing some volunteer work for a local group that was trying to get their, uh, the indigenous sea turtle nesting walks back. And I was good in Spanish. I could argue with Spanish, but I wasn't, I didn't feel like I could argue with politicians in Spanish. And again, I felt that um, there were probably people better suited to that work than, than I was. And so I had an opportunity to sail across the Pacific. Um, the Roxy Foundation, the Roxy and Quicksilver Foundation at the time, they had a spot on a sailboat and they were looking for a scientist that could help trawl for plastic particulates uh, with the five gyres uh, group. And I raised my hand, I could certainly do that. And so, but by that time, I had a real conviction that if I really wanted to um, try to, whether it was make an impact or understand what was going on in the community, what they needed, I needed to become a part of that community. I couldn't just drop in as an outsider. And so I promised myself that no matter where the boat ended up, that I was going to stay there and I was going to commit. And um, along the way, our uh, our boat stopped at a place right in the middle of the ocean called Henderson Atoll. And on Henderson, um, it's uninhabited. It's part of a Pitcairn group. And uh, the boat wanted to go ashore. And so they asked me and another crew member, hey, you guys are surfers. Can you paddle your surfboard ashore and just see if it's safe? I'm like, yep, sure. So we jumped off. I took, I put my mask around my neck, as I, as I often do. And on the way back in, my crew was like, hey, Jess, look down. And I put my mask on and there were a bunch of gray reef sharks like, circling me and following me. And I wasn't filled with terror. I thought it was the most incredible experience just to have these sharks just so curiously following me. And then as serendipity would have it, there was a marine biologist on the boat. And we had been talking a bit about the plight of sharks and I'd learned a bit about it as well. But it, I suppose clicked for me that like, wow, this is something that maybe I could do. And then again, serendipity uh, or fate or however you want to call it. There was an opportunity that I had learned about from another crew member for um, a nonprofit organization in the Cook Islands that was interested in creating a shark sanctuary. And they were interested in a scientist, someone who could write grants, um, someone who understood policy, which I really didn't at the time. And yeah, so I, I raised my hand. I quickly learned it was a guy with a beautiful website and not a, a large organization. And um, <laughs> I signed on to <laughs> to help his organization. And um you know, one of the very first things we had said was, if the community is not interested in doing this, um, we will will walk away. And uh, it turns out the community was quite interested. So, yeah, so that's me from the lab to sharks. Um, I should mention that as a child, I was obsessed with the Time Life series with the Ocean World of Jacques Cousteau. And it was something that I desperately wanted to do. But as I know, a young woman from Pennsylvania, it wasn't a very clear path for me. So, but I, I got there eventually. <laughs> Wow. So uh, other than that, it's probably a very beautiful place to live and that the uh, shark effort that you serendipitously came across was in the Cook Islands. Is there anything particularly special about the Cooks uh, in terms of uh, shark habitat? Is it a special place or is it just you know one of many where it's a great place to study sharks? The, the, yes. Yes to all of that. Uh, firstly, 
you know, it is a place that there had never been any shark research. And so that was a pretty interesting niche for me. And also coming off the back of we were successful in getting the shark sanctuary legislated in 2012. And the scientists in me knew that there was quite a bit of work to do to understand whether or not this policy was actually going to be effective to do what it said it was going to do, which is, um, you know, reduce mortality of sharks. And so I, I didn't feel good just walking away at that stage, not knowing if the policy was, would be implemented, if, you know, if the words in the actual legislation or the regulations were going to be, you know, sufficient to protect the animals. And so that's when I decided to do a PhD to study the actual effectiveness of the shark sanctuary itself. And so through that, I, I was able to do the first shark research in country with also Islanders and my research, research associates. And as part of that, we went to an island called Penryn. Penryn is at eight degrees south. It's quite far away from where I am. It's still in the Cook Islands. And it has the highest density of reef sharks of any anywhere in the world where people live. And it's a pretty interesting place because in Polynesia, there is um, there are stories that you know sharks are guardians in the culture, which is a beautiful story. But in practice, in actual fact, the fishermen don't really like sharks all that much. And so here's a place where there's incredibly high densities of sharks and fish are still fishing in a traditional way, as well as, you know, with motors and um, and deep drop reels. And they are somehow coexisting with high numbers of sharks. And so for that way, it can help us to not only figure out like, hey, what's going on? Why are there so many sharks here? But also, if shark conservation is meant to be successful in the future, here's a place where we can actually study how high populations or densities of sharks are coexisting with humans, not without conflict, with quite a bit of conflict, but it's a it's an interesting case study in that way. If you want to serve your country by being on the front lines of providing critical information to our nation's key decision makers, consider a career in the intelligence community. Freedom Consulting Group offers a highly rewarding way to be part of the intelligence community in the private sector. If you're an experienced coder and an American citizen and are looking for a great work environment, job security, and terrific benefits, visit Freedom's website at freedomconsultinggroup.com. Let's talk about sharks and high density of sharks in this area. Is there one species or shark species that are living together and hanging out with the fishermen? It depends. That's like a Typical scientist question, which you'll be very familiar with, is it depends, is the answer to everything. Uh, it depends where you are, whether you're on the reef or you're, you're generally interacting with a smaller reef species like gray reef sharks or black tip reef sharks. Whereas if you're further offshore or at what they call fish aggregating devices, those are these buoys that are anchored to the ground or to the seafloor, which actually help you uh, attract more fish, which attracts the fish with the sea you'll often encounter the pelagic sharks, so some of the oceanic white chips, which are critically endangered, or silky sharks or blue sharks or makos. Yeah, so it really just depends on where you are. So Jess, uh, I'm sure that your shark research involves a lot more than just jumping in the water and swimming around and observing them. It's actual science. So tell us a little bit about the kind of science that you're doing with these sharks. I know you're enabling other researchers, you're doing your own research. Give us a sense for what exactly it is you do. Yeah, Sandy, thanks for acknowledging that. I think a lot of people, I, I should be on one of those posters that says what people think I do versus what I do. Uh, I think most folks think that my my life entails uh, shark swimming in beautiful, clear water. And yes, it does do that sometimes. But the majority of my time is spent on fishing vessels, large and small. And that is because I am trying, I'm tracking the movement patterns of sharks. And in order to do that, I need to catch the animals and place a tag on them. And so that mostly happens from a boat. And so my field work entails uh, lots of bait. <laughs> so I will be covered in fish guts uh, m- most days. 
and lots of time on the water in, you know, in rough conditions. And oftentimes we'll be tied to those offshore buoys and that can be quite uncomfortable for folks who aren't used to it. And, and you know, uh, particularly when I'm looking at the oceanic white tip sharks, which are critically endangered, which means there aren't that many left, which also means they're not that easy to find. So we can spend hours and sometimes weeks without finding one of those animals on the small boat. But then I also spend time on um, industrial longline vessels. And these are the vessels that are primarily targeting tuna in this region. And they'll have tens of thousands of hooks in the water. And because they have so many hooks in the water, they'll often catch more sharks. Um, this is obviously an, itch, an issue one of the reasons shark populations are in trouble. But yeah, so I will spend time out there with the fishermen, hauling in the gear, setting the lines, and tagging sharks when we find them alive. We'll talk about swimming with these guys in a minute, but being out on one of those boats is, is not without its own risks, right? That's right. You know, these boats are notoriously dangerous. Commercial fisheries observers do go missing every year for reporting things that they see that might be against the law in that area. And um you know, there's an incredible book called The Outlaw Ocean, written by Ian Urbina, if anyone's interested in really understanding what does happen on the high seas away from port, and it is quite harrowing. And I can say that, you know, here in the Cook Islands, it's, uh, it's very safe, um, but it's still quite nerve-wracking being out to sea uh, for, you know, for a, a weeks at a time and not having any way to get off the vessel. And um yeah, I can't, I can't say I, I didn't hesitate before going out there, but, you know, I've had wonderful experiences with the crew. And I think that uh, longline fishers in particular get a really, really, really horrible reputation, particularly from conservationists, which is uh, embarrassing for my kind, as I should say. But really, they're just men trying to make an honest living. And uh, they were so excited about the work and to be engaged in the research. And, um, you know, two of them actually told me they wanted to be marine biologists, but they're from countries where it's quite difficult for them to do that. So uh, I would say it was incredibly nerve wracking for a while um, because you're very vulnerable, especially as you know, the only woman on board far away, no one can see what's happening. But um, I uh, trusted my gut there. I also brought uh, a bodyguard, <laughs> as you will, um, in the form of one of the local fisheries observers and really just uh, had a, an incredible time and it was quite an eye-opening experience. Huh. Wow, we could probably have a whole session just talking about that, <laughs> I imagine. But back to the the data you're collecting, you mentioned you had to tag the sharks to track them. And so what kind of training or did you have some special training or procedures or processes you had to go through to be able to interact with the sharks that way or get close to them in the water? Yeah, I did. Um, and I, I would say, man, shark, shark research, especially these days, it seems like there's a lot of people that want to get into it. And uh, you have to be, I would say, very lucky and persistent in order to get in with a group to get some training. So my first, well, I had been living here in the Cooks and no one had done it. So I was reaching out to different groups and saying, hey, can you help me understand how to do this? Um, so I had a few uh, people that were willing to take me on based on my commitment to the project and probably my ability to do work in an area where no one had access to. Um, but I would say the most profound help that I had was um, through my PhD advisors you know, learning proper techniques for fishing and handling the animals first um, in Orpheus Island, Australia. And then the um, West Australian Fisheries Authority took me on at the request of one of my advisors. And I could tell these guys were not, <laughs> not thrilled <laughs> to have a young woman on their team, as they would tell you. I think they thought I might act like a princess. And people always say like, oh, how do you not get treated like a princess? And I say, well, just don't act like one. And so I learned how to catch and tag very large tiger sharks with this group of guys. 
So these guys were great. There were um, three of them. It was Rory, Ian, and uh, I spent a couple weeks with them in West Australia tagging very large tiger sharks. And what I needed to know, I felt very comfortable running a program for the reef sharks, but the big animals are quite different because it requires, I, I, I don't know, I don't know about disgust is the word, but just uh, you need to have a real handle on the boat. Because you know, in here, I'm the only person that knows what the hell's going on. So I need to be able to run the boat. And doing that when things are fine is great, but when things go wrong is when I really felt like I needed the um, training. And I felt confident about that uh, after spending time with the guys in West Coast. I think that's pretty cool. I've been around some amazing uh, women dive instructors. Uh, so running a boat, I know exactly what you're talking about. Jess, I wanted to ask you, um, sharks have a mystique, right? People are fascinated by them. They're scared of sharks, uh, you know, based on films and things like that. What's the real story in your view? You know, how dangerous are they? What risks are you really taking by exposing yourselves to them, by, you know, by diving with them? And, you know, candidly, kind of a dumb question here. Have you ever made friends with a shark? <laughs> Uh, the first thing I can say is no. I know I, I, I've been asked that a few times. I have not made friends with a shark. I uh, have been asked, like, is there a shark that you hang out with? Like, kind of like my octopus teacher. And um, no is the answer. But I have had some pretty interesting encounters with sharks. So just to get back to your main question of um, how dangerous are they? It, <laughs> my favorite answer, it depends. If you're just out diving, you know, you're very lucky if sharks even come up to you. In fact, most of the footage that you see on um you know, on nature and nature documentaries, and in particular, you know, with um, people interacting with sharks, they generally have bait. And if they come up and check you out on a dive, you're very lucky. And so I always consider that instead of us being afraid, we should be actually quite thankful that we do get the opportunity to see them in the wild without bait. And then when you have bait in the water, it changes a little bit. So their movements get uh, a little bit more um, twitchy, as they shall say. <laughs> Or, you know, they become, they might bump into you when you have bait, um, or if you're in a bait ball where they're feeding, then yeah, they'll, they'll knock into you and move you around because then you're, you know, you either have the bait on you and they want it, or you can be seen as competition. So, but even then, um, I've been in big bait balls with sharks, I've been in the water in large schools of sharks, and, and I have never had an issue. And it seems that the larger sharks are generally a bit more chill. The sharks that I've had interesting encounters with are actually just uh, gray reef sharks. So they get quite territorial and um, they can charge in at you. And yeah, I've, I've been chased out of the water by a shark or two, but it's important that you just know their attributes, I suppose, when they're frustrated. And yeah, otherwise, I think they get a bad rap overall. So how do you mitigate the risks that are involved in getting up close to them? You just learn to read their behavior, as you just said, and that's pretty much everything. I mean, you're you're walking, I mean, you're swimming around with bait, which is going to attract them, right? So it's not like you're in a cage or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's your free. Yeah. It's like, how do you manage that? <laughs> no, I don't often spend time with sharks with bait unless we're out spearfishing. And, um, you know, then it becomes an interesting um, encounter if you're offshore. You know, if you're near a boat, then it's no big deal. You just get the fish out of the water as quickly as possible, plop it in the boat. And my partner has had surprisingly more large shark encounters here in the Cook Islands than I have in the water because he's spearfishing. And so, you know, he'll take bait out and chum for tuna and he'll have tiger sharks and hammerheads come up and check him out. And I'm like, what the heck? I'm the one that does this for a living. But um, yeah, the, and the short answer is you, you read the situation like you do in, in any job. You know, you know when it's looking risky and you, you make a call based on all available factors, such as how far do I have to swim back ashore or is there a boat right here or am I alone? Is there one other person? Do I have anything to poke a shark away with to get a little space? And, and you make a call based on your experience and the situation. 
Have you ever gotten out of the water, Jess, and said to yourself, that that was a little too close for comfort? Yeah, once. <laughs> and again, this is just reef sharks. I was um, on an island called Palmerston Apple, which is here in the Cook Islands. And uh, my survey buddy and I, we were actually doing sea uh, oil research at the time. We were about two k's away from shore doing running transects for sea turtle nesting habit or sea turtle um, habitat and a gray reef shark just kept like charging in at us and charging in at us and there was nowhere for us to go and so yeah at the uh, kind of at the last minute it charged in at me like with its teeth like glaring and uh i just screamed in my snorkel because i had nowhere to go and it turned at the last minute and um anyway <laughs> that's probably about as close as i'd like to get i've not had anything Anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for meaningful employment within the intelligence community? Look no further. Freedom Consulting Group's a great place to work and has several open positions for American citizens in the technology field. Technical teams at Freedom focus on using the right technology to create flexible, long-lasting solutions for key clients. So if you're an experienced coder looking for a fantastic position in the world of intelligence, visit Freedom's website at freedomconsultinggroup.com. So you're sort of out there pretty far away. I mean, you're in a civilized place, but but it, you're doing things away from what most of us would consider the, you know, big healthy infrastructure of, of rescue medicine when things go wrong, that sort of thing. So there's got to be a little bit of a you know pucker factor there in terms of, of <laughs> doing what you do in a fairly remote location. Yes, uh, particularly when we're on the outer island. So here in Rarotonga, we have a hospital. But when we're in the outer islands, you know, we are, when we're diving, we don't have a, a, a chamber. We don't have um, access to emergency medicine at all. So we have to be quite careful and calculated with what we do. So for example, when we were in Tenrin, um, you know, we're working off of local fishing boats and um, there are no regularly scheduled flights there. There has to be enough jet fuel in Tenrin for a flight to come up from the Cook Islands because the, the, the airplanes that we have can't make it back <laughs> uh, immediately. So if there's not enough, if there's not enough jet fuel there, you can't get an emergency flight in. Uh, of course, you could get the New Zealand um, enforcement vessel could come out, but that's, you know, four to six hours uh, if it leaves immediately. So. I would say that we're more careful than probably others with um, what we do. And for that reason, um, we're extremely careful around what I call the pointy end of the shark. We secure the shark's head uh, to the side of the boat when it's in the water. Um, some folks just, you know, rely on the hook, but we actually, uh, we secure the head and, and we never take our eyes off the pointy end. And usually it's me uh, that's handling the pointy end um, just because you can know you can move your head quite quickly and they can turn around and bite you. And so, Yeah. It can be tricky. Never heard of anybody refer to it as the pointy end of a shark, but it uh, makes a lot of sense because <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of points yeah. on that pointy there end. There are a lot of pointy parts. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do one, does one of the crew trained as sort of a first responder medical person then because you're so remote? Uh, I wish. Uh, one of, no, I should be and we should be. One of the, um, if anyone's listening, that has uh, access to emergency tropical medicine, it's one of the programs that I actually like to try to design is emergency medicine for the remote tropics because they have a lot of courses for wilderness first responder, which are mountains and generally colder. But um, the tropical diseases, the tropical, um, yeah, I think that would be really useful and helpful, something that we need to do. So, uh, you know, if I'm not mistaken, you know, there are nearly 500 species of sharks out there and, and many of them are endangered. So a couple of questions that are somewhat related, I guess. Uh, one is I would imagine 
the biggest threat to this apex predator is is humans. And and the other is, uh, are there a lot of people like you out there uh, studying sharks all over the planet? And are we are we gaining any you know really important insights as as we get further into this? Yeah, well, you're spot on. Um, so sharks are uh, they're roughly so just sharks. Yep, about 500. If you consider their cousins, um, the rays, the sharks and rays, they both have bodies made of cartilage, so they're in the same family. There are over 1,250 species, and of those, more than 30 percent are actually threatened with extinction. And there are a number of people doing shark work, particularly, you know, as, as people get really excited by Nat Geo Shark Fest and by Shark Week and um, the changing, I suppose, perception of sharks as monsters to, you know, an animal that needs protection from humans, which, yes, you're correct, are the greatest threat to sharks from mostly overfishing. But there's still so much work that needs to be done. I mean, we're still discovering new species every year. There are absolutely insufficient policies to protect them in, I would the vast majority of, of the world. There are very few countries in the world, uh, usually, you know, the highly developed nations that even have the capacity to properly manage sharks. And they're doing that alongside other species they're managing, such as tuna or swordfish or mai mai. And so sharks are often, um, I would say, a side effect of management as opposed to an absolute uh, a targeted species for management. But that is changing. And um, so if there's anyone out there that's interested in, you know, shark research and conservation, if you don't mind spending time on both or um, or you have a law background or computer science, like there's room for everyone and there's a need, a, a great need. So what does dive with the sharks experience? Is that sort of, I mean, it could be good because it's exposing people to the animal and maybe they lose their fear or it could be bad because it is putting more interference in the shark's natural habitat with people that really don't belong there. I'm a bit conflicted on, on, you know, the diving, um, to be really honest. I'm not a huge fan of like the hand feeding operations. It's just not necessary to, you know, experience that interaction, to experience a positive interaction with sharks. I don't think it's necessary to hand feed them. And, you know, when people are touching them, putting their hands all over them, um, I'm not a huge fan of that. They are wildlife and should be respected as such. But there are operations, for example, there's um, in Benga Lagoon in Fiji, you know, they've it's a locally run operation. A marine reserve has been created. The, the the funds that are raised from the shark diving operation are shared with the community and help keep the marine reserve intact. And it's and it's run by local people. And so, in that regard, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a great operation. Um, but there's a number of them I think um, that are run by cowboys and are more interested in, I would say, um, being profound rather than being productive for shark conservation. So, are there a lot of other shark sanctuaries around the world like yours? And if so, do you guys compare data? Or are there just completely different scientific? ecosystems and and there's no really no way to correlate there are 15 shark sanctuaries on the planet and i i uh, there are only that i know of there are two that have uh, or three that have active research going on inside of them and so uh it's quite a new field is actually studying the effectiveness of the sanctuaries themselves there have it has been quite a bit of work done in australia in particular around the effectiveness of marine protected areas on sharks and so Shark sanctuaries, like not to get too policy wonky, but um, they're, you know, a little bit different than marine protected areas just based in what's written in the policy. And so there, there are, there's quite a bit of note comparing and publications that talk about, you know, what works in one area and maybe what doesn't work in another or what might be needed to um, better protect the animals in sanctuaries. So just this sort of sounds like it's uh, turned into your life's work, which is cool. And by the way, we should mention the name of your nonprofit, which is Shark Specific. If anybody wants to look that up, it's a nice website. But 
where do you see this going? Uh, where do you want to take the research? Where do you want to take your future? Because, you know, you're, you're kind of in a spot right now where a lot of people uh, that are listening to this would go, wow, I wish I could be out in the Cook Islands doing something cool like that. But where do you, where do you see it going? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, Shark Specific, I founded this organization in 2015. It was initially a fiscally sponsored project by the Wildlife Conservation Society. So just want to give them a shout out as a thank you for taking me on. And then we rolled out into our own nonprofit a couple of years ago. And we work on research, outreach, and policy. And so while we're currently working in the Cook Islands and also Niue, which is the country to the West, we hope to expand our research in the Pacific more and use real science to actually drive better policies to better protect not just sharks, but also the people and places that depend on them. And that is because in order to have effective conservation, you have to consider the people because you're looking at behavior change, but you also can't then try to impose conservation policies on people that you know will, will force them to go hungry, for example. And so it's important to really understand the local impact of the conservation measures for an animal that you are advocating for. I can say more easily than you can. There is a donate button on the website, <laughs> just <laughs> Thank in you. case. But I'd also, I would love for more people to see shark research and conservation um, as a more nuanced topic. So I think right now, you know, people that fish are seen as villains and, you know, sharks are these like magical creatures you should ride on, which I, I think there's a bit of a, a little bit of a disconnect there under reality. And I would just love for there to be a little more balance and um, more, uh, I suppose, interaction in, in the real process of protecting sharks, which includes like this kind of gritty, dirty policy and, and, and horse trading as you will. Well, Jess, I have to tell you that one of our previous guests was a, a wonderful interview with a guy named Jamie Mitchell, who's Australian big wave surfer. And so the three of us have a shared passion for surfing, right? Although I don't get to do it as much as I really wish I could. Uh, how is the surf in the Cook Islands? Or do you even want to tell us if it's good? <laughs> yeah, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I love it. It's a sanctuary. They don't want the surfers there. <laughs> well, Jamie, this has really been terrific. Uh, it's really been something we want to do for a long time, as I mentioned. It's incredibly interesting. We could talk to you for a lot longer about the nuances of, of what you do each and every day. And frankly, uh, sort of what, what seems to the outsider an idyllic life, living on a South Pacific island, doing important research and getting to go surf. So uh, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, it was really great chatting with you. Thank you. That was shark researcher and founder of Shark Pacific, Jessica Cramp. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Thanks again to Freedom Consulting Group for sponsoring this episode. Do some work that matters. Check them out at freedomconsultinggroup.com. And check us out on social media, including a short video of our interview with Jess on TikTok. Our handle is very simple, at The Adrenaline Zone. And we'll see you next week with another episode. 